This morning we get to look at an incredible passage of Scripture in which we get to see something of the compassion of Jesus in maybe one of the ways that, that one of the most pronounced ways I've ever seen. Let's pray. Father, I come before you in my great weakness. And I pray, Lord, that you would guard my heart and my words, that you would hold me behind the word, that I would not preach things as, as fact, those things that are only my opinions that I would proclaim faithfully your word that I would rob you of no glory but that you would take glory for yourself in the preaching of your word I pray that your spirit would be upon us and that we would receive the message that we would grow by it that we'd be encouraged by it and that if it's your will Lord that you would even save souls through it in your name Amen well our passage this morning is in Luke's gospel Luke chapter 7 verses 11 through 17 Luke chapter 7 verses 11 through 17 soon afterward he went to a town called Nain And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up to the came up and touched the buyer and the bearers stood still and he said young man i say to you arise and the dead man sat up and began to speak and jesus gave him to his mother Fear seized them all and they glorified god saying a great prophet has risen among us And God has visited His people. And this report about Him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now as we began this sermon series through Luke's Gospel, some of the early sermons were entitled things like The Glory of God on Display. And... As we we looked at the glory of God on display, some of the things that, that we noticed was the glory of His sovereignty. How He worked out even the affairs of men to His own ends. In one sermon, we saw how God used the decree of the emperor to make sure that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. In message after message, we saw God, how God would demonstrate His providence and cause all things to work together for the fulfillment of His plan. We saw Him take 
and make a barren woman pregnant. The priest of God made mute. The virgin became a mother. In all of these displays of God's mighty power, we learn much about who our God is. And the control that He wields over His creation. And this morning, it's our privilege to look at the glory of Jesus on display. The glory of Jesus on display. As Jesus raises to life this widow's only son. Now when I talk about the glory of Jesus, what I'm talking about is the character or the glory of Jesus' character on display, the glory of His attributes on display. And in our passage, we see three characteristics or attributes or, or qualities of Jesus that are on display. And so I've outlined the message this morning by those three. We see the compassion of Jesus. We see the authority of Jesus and we see the power of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and the power of Jesus. So let's begin by by looking at the compassion of Jesus on display. Verse 12, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold a man who who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Now I want you to take special notice of those two clauses. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. What I want you to see is that Jesus is, 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 see here, is that Jesus considers this woman's circumstances. He takes into account the circumstances of her life. As the, the two crowds converge, the one following Jesus and the other following this, this dead body that's being carried out of town, Luke tells us, this woman's condition that she was a widow and that the dead man was her only son the observation can be made in several places of scripture that the loss of an only son is particularly grievous and we don't need scripture to tell us that we know that by experience as well that the loss of an only son is 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 is, is, is heartbreaking. It's devastating. God uses it to refer to the crucifixion of Jesus and, and, and how the, the Jews will one day respond in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that they will look on Me, on Him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child. And and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
the bitter weeping and mourning of the loss of an only son was even even more painful during this time. For this widow, when, when an only son died, the family was cut off. That was the end of the family line. There would be no heir to carry on the family line. And this woman being a widow, she would have no one to care for her. No one to take care of of her needs. In fact, it is this type of widow that the Apostle Paul tells us. He calls this type of widow a widow indeed or a widow truly. And he encourages the church to have compassion, the body of Christ to have compassion on such as these and provide for them an income. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3 says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers day and night. When Paul says concerning these widows that they are worthy of honor, what he means by that is they are to be provided with an income from the church. And that these must be truly widows. Widows who by definition, or at least by partial definition, have no one to care for them. No children or grandchildren. And as Jesus sees this woman walking with this crowd and she's crying, you can almost see the compassion of Christ. As He walks up to this woman... I mean, I don't know the picture I get in my head. I see Jesus walking up to this woman with tears in his own eyes saying, don't cry. Don't weep. I mean, it wouldn't be long now before Jesus' own mother would have to face the loss of her firstborn. And do you remember Jesus' words to her on the cross recorded in John's Gospel? As Jesus is entrusting her care to John, he, this is what we read, John chapter 19, when Jesus saw his mother, now he's hanging on the cross, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What I want to stress here is that Jesus is not cold and indifferent to the pain of this widow. He's not cold and indifferent to her circumstances. It wasn't just another healing on the itinerary to show forth that he was who he said he was. There was real emotion here. There was real compassion in the heart of the Messiah. And from this, we can learn something of his compassion toward us. I mean, the heart of the gospel message, friends, is that our circumstances are dire. 
Our circumstances are dire. Every person born into this world is born a sinner, an enemy of God. And while every creature of God owes God full obedience, from the time of our youth, we, we've lived at the winds and dictates of our own hearts. We've lived by the whims of our own evil imaginations. I mean, the most righteous act, the, 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 the most act that would show the goodness of God for the rest of creation that obeys Him perfectly would be for God to just blot out and destroy the rebels. Jesus takes sympathy upon us miserable creatures. And in a heart full, even overflowing with compassion, He comes and dies in the place of sinners. In His own body, Jesus receives the wrath of God righteously owed to these rebels. And now God the Father says through His Son to us miserable sinners, to us miserable rebels who deserve His wrath, He says to us, don't weep. Don't cry. The compassion of Jesus has made you right with me. because of the compassion of Jesus we can know that Jesus is not indifferent to our circumstances in fact it's in his compassion that the author of Hebrews appeals to when he writes Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a glorious thought, friends. What a glorious thought that in the midst of our failures... In the midst of our weaknesses, we can have confidence in the compassion of Christ. Knowing that He ever lives to make intercession for us. Knowing that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Oh, dear ones, I love that idea that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. I mean, there's a sense of expectancy. The person coming boldly, he expects to receive grace. And why? Not, it's certainly not because it's owed to him. It's certainly not because it's, it's owed to us, but rather because we know the compassionate nature of the one to whom we come for mercy. We know of His compassion, and so we come expecting His grace. 
friends, the compassion of Jesus should fill us with great confidence as we approach the throne of grace. We were sinners when He had compassion on us initially and saved us. And it's that same compassion that will continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we regularly go to Him in repentance. I don't know about you, but that thrills me when I am looking at my failures, when I'm looking at the law and I'm seeing how in the mirror of God's holy law I am such a failure. To know that Jesus is compassionate, that He sympathizes with me, that He that He considers my frame, my weakness. And that I can go boldly to the throne of grace, expecting grace because of His compassion. Before we go on to the authority of Jesus, I want to bring out one more application that I see because of the compassion of Jesus. And this one, I'll admittedly say, is, is, is more of a... I don't really know the right words to use. It's more of a it's more of an expectant hope that I have personally based upon his compassion than something that I can teach as a doctrine. When we pray for our unsaved loved ones that they might know the grace and mercy of Christ, I take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows the pain of our hearts for them. And while I'm in no way making a promise that He will definitely save them, I take comfort in the sovereignty of God and in my own selfish heart. Let me explain that to you. The reason I take comfort in my own selfish heart and the yearnings of my own selfish heart is because... When I'm praying for the salvation of my loved ones, I don't know how that got there. How does that get into the heart of a selfish man? How does, how does it get into my heart to love those who are perishing? How does it get into my heart unless it's the compassion of Christ being put in my heart by the Holy Spirit? Why would the Holy Spirit place the compassion of Christ in my heart for these specific loved ones that I yearn for, that I cry for, that I witness to, that I pray for, if He didn't intend to save them? When I prayed and I I wept and I, I witnessed to my mom for years, and in God's timing, He radically saved her. I've done the same for my father, and yet he still lives with a stiff neck and a flinted stone heart and refuses to come to to Christ, preferring the pleasures of this passing world. I don't know if God will save him, but I know based upon the compassion of Christ that I can continue to have hope. 
So I don't lose heart in witnessing to him. I don't lose heart in praying for him. I don't lose heart in 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 yearning for his salvation. The compassion of Christ fills me with hope. And I hope that it can fill you with hope. I mean, that's the the point of that, uh, of looking at that in such detail. Let's move now to the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus on display. Verse 14. Then he came up and touched the buyer. That that means coffin. Um, Although those sorts of coffins were open. And uh, and they weren't really coffins. It was more of a wicker stretcher. But he comes up and he touches it. And it says, And the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. What I want you to notice is that the dead man obeys the command of Jesus. He obeys the voice of Jesus. I mean, dead men can't hear, and they certainly, even if they could hear, they can't obey. I want you to see something. Luke has spent a great deal of time showing us that Jesus has authority and that his authority is not the authority of just any normal man. It's not the authority of just some prophet. Luke has shown us that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease, authority to forgive sins, authority over demons and devils. Last week we saw that this was the, the, the point to show his authority. The, the centurion appeals to his authority and Jesus heals his servant from afar. It was this uncommon authority that caused those who listened to the preaching of Jesus to take notice and say, this guy doesn't preach like the Pharisees and scribes. He preaches as one who has authority. I mean, do you remember during the midst of the storm? The apostles are... are, are, are are terrified. They're going nuts. Jesus is sleeping on the boat and they say to Him, don't you care that we're drowning? And Jesus stands and He speaks in the wind and the waves obey Him. Friends, at the very voice of Jesus, demons are cast out. Sickness and disease leave the body. Jesus commands the dead to to rise and they come to life. The authority of Jesus is nothing less than a demonstration of His deity. A demonstration of His deity. A demonstration that this man born in Nazareth of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, that he possessed the authority, the same authority of the one who spoke, who said, let there be light. And there was light. The very one who spoke and the earth was created, who spoke and the stars and planets came into existence. As John tells us with absolutely no ambiguity in John chapter 1 verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made.
in Jesus's authority on display, we see majesty, the majesty of, of our king as he demonstrates his prerogative, his divine prerogative, and he calls this dead man to arise. Looking at the authority of Jesus on display should also should also cause us shame. It should cause the church in North America great shame, or as my notes say, to be ashamed of itself. Why? Because Jesus says with all He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say, okay, I've been raised from the dead. I'm going back to my Father now. So would you please consider... Sharing the stuff that I did so that some people will join the church. No, he says all authority in heaven and earth is mine. And my command to you, my disciples, is that you would go and make disciples. Baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And why do I say that we should be ashamed I think that's obvious. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. According to the U.S. Center of World for World Missions, it says only 5.7% of giving to Christian causes goes to foreign missions. Of that, 87% goes to work among those who are already Christians. 12% for work among already evangelized non-Christians and 1% for work among people, groups who are unevangelized or unreached. Americans spend far more on pet food and chewing gum than on the cause of world missions. Friends, what's worse is not the lack of giving because the command isn't send money so that other people can go. What's worse is the lack of going, and not only the lack of going into foreign missions, but the lack of going to our neighbors, going to our friends, going to our family. We should be ashamed as American Christians because, in all honesty, we hate the command of Jesus. I was watching a sermon by Francis Chan yesterday, and he was just completely honest. I hate it. I hate telling somebody something that they don't want to hear, something that they're going to accuse me of cramming down their throat, something that causes them to dislike me. I hate it. It's hard. We don't do it because we like it. We do it because it's the command of God and we love souls because He loves souls. On the one hand, we have God giving us this command to go with the message of the Gospel. And on the other hand, we have the world telling us, I don't want to hear it. You're being too pushy. 
don't shove your religion down my throat. And by and large, who do we obey? I think it's obvious. We treat the world as though it had more authority over us than Christ. I just love this quote. A street evangelist up in Canada, he, he, he wrote this and put it on Facebook the other day. He says, a heckler yesterday yelled, stop shoving your beliefs down our throats. I responded, stop shoving your belief that people shouldn't shove beliefs down people's throats down my throat. But that's the point, isn't it? You're not my authority. You, you're not the, you don't have the right to tell me not to share it with you. God, the creator of the universe, has commanded me to go and to share this with you. And I'm doing it because I love you. And I don't want to see you go to hell forever. I don't want to see you separated from God forever. I don't want to see you missing out on what you were created for and thrown away like a defective toy. It's not even that nice. It's actually eternal punishment in hell forever. Friends, Jesus is the one who has commissioned us to go, who has commanded us to proclaim the gospel to all peoples. And when we in comfortable North American Christianity use our time, treasure, and talent to pursue the stuff of this passing world rather than obey the Great Commission, we prove that we don't really consider ourselves under the authority of Jesus. And in large measure, I'd have to blame that, friends, on our faulty gospel. The faulty gospel of our country. Do you realize that the gospel is not a request for people to make a decision? It's a command. Listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands... The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now He commands. One more time. But the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has appointed. And of this day He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. When you go and you share the gospel with people in the name of and the authority of Jesus Christ, you are going with a message that is not your message. You don't have the right or the authority to change it. It is His message, and His message always consists in two parts. The first is the law, that blessed schoolmaster that shows a person that they are a wretched sinner and that they deserve hell. And as a schoolmaster, it drives them to the only place of refuge, to the cross. And the second is the grace of God that is promised 
to all who repent of their sins and turn in full life surrender to Jesus. That blessed truth that Jesus paid their debt, the debt of those who believe upon the cross. And that God now calls them righteous. And why does He call them righteous? Why does He call us righteous who believe? Because He credits to us the righteousness of Jesus, choosing to overlook our wretchedness, our unrighteousness. And further, He promises that one day He will make us truly righteous in the resurrection, giving us perfect, sinless bodies. One of my favorite verses in Scripture says that we will be able to see Him, for we will be, or we we will be able to see Him, for we will be like Him. That's an amazing truth. It's a command to be obeyed, not a request. If we go out and we preach the gospel to people like that, it's just going to flare up their pride. They're going to shut down and they're not going to listen to us and they're going to go away. And I want to tell you this, unless the Holy Spirit of God is at work in their hearts, they're going to do that anyway, no matter how nice you are about it. The last thing I'd like to look at this morning is the power of Jesus on display. And the same verses, chapter 7, verse 14 through 15. And he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, what I would like you to notice is that Jesus is not asked. Jesus, would you come and heal this poor widow's son? She doesn't come up to him and say, would you please heal my son? In fact, from the way that the the narrative plays out, this group had no idea Jesus was coming to Nain. May not have even known who he was. Although that's somewhat doubtful since his reputation had been spreading far and wide. But the reason I point that out is because there's been a false teaching that has, that has sort of emerged in these days. And primarily that false teaching has shown up in the charismatic movement, in the charismatic circles, and it's this. It says that Jesus just couldn't do anything apart from a person's faith. That Jesus is just powerless unless a person's faith is there. Now, it's true, throughout the miracles of Jesus, we do see Him working in concert with, a pers- with people's faith. And we also see that Jesus was dependent upon the Holy Spirit for power. But our passage shows that Jesus was not dependent upon human faith as if faith was some sort of power source or some sort of cosmic force. Jesus did not need anyone to believe for Him to exercise His power. In fact, many times during his ministry, we see Jesus performing miracles despite or in, 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 in direct, the direct absence of human faith. 
And as is the case when he's actually laughed at before raising Jairus' daughter to life. Or in our passage where he moves, where he's moved only by his own compassion to raise the widow's son. But let's listen to Jesus' own testimony concerning his power, concerning his power over life and death. This is John chapter 10, verse 17. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It's clear from Jesus' testimony here that his ability to raise the dead, his ability and power was due not to human faith as some force, but was due to the fact that the Father had granted him the authority to do it. In fact, the disciples don't even... They don't even believe the report of the women that Jesus has been raised from the dead. You think that there was human faith at work to raise Jesus from the dead? The disciples had scattered. They were hiding. And the Bible tells us that Jesus raised himself from the dead. He possesses power over life and death. Because he is the Son of God. In John chapter 5, verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. So we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning just, just applying the, this to us, marrying together the compassion and power of Jesus. I mean, Jesus, the one who shows such compassion for this woman, is not merely compassionate, but He's able to do something. I mean, I can be compassionate all day long, but I can't raise the dead. Jesus was able to put action behind His compassion. And the application that I would bring to our lives, you know, not that we should think that his compassion toward us would result in the raising of the dead, but that we can be sure of his compassion toward us and his power to accomplish what his compassion would, would, would bring him to accomplish in our lives. His compassion, He can comfort us. He's able to. And listen to the words of Peter as he encourages the elect regarding the compassion of Christ, regarding the compassion of the Father. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him. Because He cares for you. The 
power and compassion of Jesus is for us a source of great hope. Because not only is Jesus full of compassion, but He's able to act on that compassion. Lastly, the power and compassion of Jesus gives us hope in the Great Commission. Because Jesus doesn't simply command us to go, but He promises to go with us. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's how the Great Commission closes. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We don't attempt to go out and raise the dead by ourselves. We go hand in hand with one who is able to raise them to the power of the gospel. When the heckler stands up and he says, don't shove your religion down my throat. And we just keep persisting. The law of God says you're a sinner. Look at the law of God and compare your life to the law of God. If you're honest, you know that, you've, that you deserve the wrath of God. You know that you deserve hell for all eternity. That you've been nothing but a rebel your whole life. Don't shove your religion down my throat. And you persist on. Look at Jesus and His perfect life. Jesus, who deserved only worship, only love, only honor, died in the place of sinners. And if you'll repent and turn to Him, don't shove your religion down my throat. If you'll repent and turn to Him, He places your sins upon Christ and places Christ's righteousness on you. I don't have the power to raise you from the dead and to get you to change your mind, heckler. I don't have the power to get you to say, stop shoving my religion down your throat. But I have a message and I go with one who is able to raise you from the dead. And if he should so do it, then you'll begin to weep at this message and cry and repent. It should give us great confidence that we go with one who is compassionate and able when we bring the gospel to sinners. So let us go, therefore, friends, in confidence, sharing our faith and calling men to repentance, knowing that Christ, who is able, goes with us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have called us from death to life, that you who are able to raise the dead have raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life, that you have granted us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you have granted us a heart that beats to live for you. Father, I pray that you would increase our love for you, that you would increase our faith in you, that we would love more the things that you love and hate more the things that you hate, that we would would not be afraid of men and that we would not lift them up to a place of authority, listening to their desire to stop their ears as our instructions, but rather listening to your commission as our instructions. 
Oh, Father, and I pray, go with us. Go with us as we share the Gospel with others. Go with us and show Your compassion through us. Show Your compassion that You loved sinners enough to suffer in their place, to take upon Yourself the, the hell that they deserve, the hell that we deserve, the wrath that we deserve in Your own body. Oh, that we would be ambassadors of compassion, walking with You who are able to act upon that compassion.